Welcome back to God Books, the podcast where we talk to booksellers all around the world. My guest today is Danny Kane, bookseller and majority owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. The Raven was founded in 1987 as a mystery specialty store. But today you can walk in to find books of fiction, current events, environmental writing, children's books, science fiction, romance, and poetry. The poetry section, in particular, might have something to do with today's guest, who is himself a published poet, but we'll come back to that. In recent years, The Raven, and especially its majority owner, Danny, have become small business and anti-Amazon activists through viral tweets turned into books, media appearances, such as this one, and a growing collection of activist signs. And as of 2022, The Raven is one of the very few employee-owned bookstores. The Raven stands for something. It believes that reading books won't fix the world's problems, but they can be a pretty good place to start. It believes that Amazon is bad and the United States Postal Service is good. And it believes that small businesses and independent bookstores are vital to their communities. Danny wrote two books on the topic too, so I've invited him on God Books to talk about his career as a bookseller, his popular books encouraging us to protect independent bookstores, and of course, books. Here's my conversation with Danny Kane from the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. Hi, Danny, and welcome to God Books. Very glad to have you here today. How, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I know that you're not in the bookstore at the moment, but I usually start these conversations by asking booksellers to give me a virtual tour of their bookshop. Some of them have done it while actually walking with their laptop around the bookshop, but you can maybe do it from, from memory. Can you give me a, a tour of Raven, please? Yeah, the Raven is on Massachusetts Street, which is kind of the downtown. I guess in Europe, you'd call it a high street, but it's our main street in Lawrence, Kansas. It's lined with restaurants and great small businesses. It's a really classic kind of glass storefront. So you, you go in through the front door and the first thing you see is um, kind of a stately, high-ceilinged fiction room. And that's where, well, it's all of our adult books actually are up front. And it has historic wood floors, pressed tin ceilings, um, bookshelves lining the walls and big flat tables kind of creating a center aisle. Um, there are bright colors, but it definitely feels like an older classic American storefront. And that's what we were going for. And so you kind of go through this classic bookshop feel till you get to the middle of the store where you'll see our cash register. Um, we have a giant neon sign of an open book with uh, light radiating out from it behind the cash register. I always wanted to make a custom neon sign. And when we renovated our storefront, that was my chance uh, to do it. So we teamed up with the local artists to make our neon, which we're really proud of and we really love. And then you kind of pass through a narrow hallway where we have cookbooks and mysteries, and then it opens up into the back of the store, which is our children's section, which we wanted to have a totally different vibe from the front of the store. So we've got, it's a little hard to describe without seeing it, but there's a whole wall of built-in shelves with these cutout reading nooks that have a little bench and a light in each of them between each of the bookcases. And throughout the wall, we have little geometric cutouts or these little shapes um, where we can prop up books or put decorations. And the children's room is very bright there's a lot of light from a big window and we have really bright and vivid colors back there. And so while the front of the store feels kind of classic and stately, the back of the store is, uh, I took inspiration from the Memphis modern movement of the eighties. So, um, bright colors, 
bold geographic designs. Um, we have a back door to our parking lot. So we wanted to have two different experiences depending on which door of the Raven you came into. And so it's a really bright and welcoming children's area in the back. And then we have a big back room where we have a staff lounge and an office and a receiving and shipping room too, because we've been doing a lot of, of uh, online orders and shipping. So we had to expand our, our back room, but that's those aren't nearly as well decorated as the front of the store, in part because we ran out of money doing the front of the store. So the back room is very practical, uh, but it does the job for us. It's a good home. So you, you started at the front and then you just saw how much money you have, depending, <laughs> and you got it some point yeah. and you're like, okay, Make sure done. the sales floor is done and then we'll see what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> And so, Danny, the, the Raven Bookstore opened in, is it correct, 1987? Is that right? Right. Yeah. I, I only remember that because that's my that's the year of my birth, so it's really easy to oh, remember. Oh, I'm 1986. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely haven't been there. I was one year old when the store opened. I haven't been there from the beginning um, we can, at we all. We can safely say you're not the founder. You would definitely be right. the youngest yeah. one. So has it... I would imagine so, but how how has it changed over the years? I mean, you haven't seen it as you were one year old, but since you've been around, how has it evolved and changed? And how did it look like when it opened in 87? Yeah. Well, I and I really wanted to honor the history of the Raven and everything I do. So though I wasn't there, I was busy being a baby when the store was opened. I am, am well aware of the, the story and the history of the store. It was very, it was much smaller, and it was only murder mysteries and local titles when it opened. Um, and in 1987, Lawrence, Kansas, had maybe six or seven specialty bookstores. And and over the years, kind of a mega chain bookstore opened downtown in the 90s, and then after that, we of course have Amazon. And so the combination of all that has meant that the Raven is really the only store left that's selling new books in Lawrence. So we've expanded far beyond mystery into kids' books and literature and genre fiction and poetry, political nonfiction. All of our new specialties have kind of happened since 1987 as those other stores have closed. And we've gotten bigger. We were in that tiny original storefront until 2022, um, or no, 2021. We moved in summer 2021 to this new renovated storefront. So it is in a different location, but again, we really tried to honor the spirit and the feel of the original Raven, especially in that kind of classic feeling front room when we designed the space. Yeah. And, you know, while it's quite sad to hear that five, five, six other bookstores have closed in the meantime, and we'll talk about the future of bookstores and bookselling a little bit later on, it is hopeful to hear that Raven is still there and has expanded. And yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into how that's happened and how that's possible and what you're doing to kind of keep it alive and thriving. But before we do that, you mentioned you were one year old when the shop opened. So definitely uh, we're not there from the start. But how did you get to Raven and how did you become a bookseller? If I'm not wrong, I heard on a, on a different podcast where you were a guest that you started off by being a teacher, which is perhaps a little different than being a bookseller. Um, so I'm just curious how you how you made that transition into bookselling. Yeah, I taught high school for three years. I taught 10th grade English, which is um, in, in the U.S. 10th grade is um, 16 year olds. I found it extremely challenging. The job was really exhausting, I think, in part because of where I was teaching. I was teaching in a small town in the country in Ohio, which is, I don't think, my ideal place to live or work. After ending that job and not knowing what to do, I went to grad school to be a writer, to pursue an MFA in poetry. And the, the program that accepted me and offered to pay me to attend was the University of Kansas in Lawrence. And it was great. It was a really good program, but 
in the States being a grad student, it's, it doesn't, you don't get a lot of money. It's the graduate stipend is, is not really enough to live on. So I was looking for another job. And I had always dreamed of working in a bookstore and Lawrence had this great bookstore. And so I really tried to become part of the store's community and get to know the employees and just kind of be there and ready when they were ready to hire someone. Uh, there were no job openings when I moved to Lawrence. It was a really small team back in, this was 2014. Um, there were only six people working there. Uh, so I made sure that the owner knew me, that I was around, that I went to events, that I was a customer. And then in spring of 2015, I managed to snag a job interview um, and came on as a part-time bookseller. And I just really fell in love with bookselling from there. Uh, and so I worked for a couple of years as a part-time bookseller. And then the owner retired and agreed to hand over the store um, to me because I was done with grad school. And I decided um, this was an unexpected but promising next step. So you were pretty young then, no? How how old yeah. were you when you became the, the um, owner of the store? 31. 31. Yeah. And I mean, I'd imagine there were other booksellers around. Maybe they had worked at the shop longer. Do you have any clue why the owner decided to ask you or gave you this opportunity? Oh, yeah. I mean, there there is one bookseller who's been there since 1997 and one bookseller who's been there since 2001. And they're the longest tenures and they're co-owners with me now. People work at bookstores for different reasons. A lot of the really experienced folks have other jobs. Um, the one who's been there since 2001 is a professor who works at the bookstore on weekends for fun to stay connected to her community. And, and so, yeah, I was looking for a full-time job. I was kind of there in the right place at the right time. I had always thought about running a bookstore. And for whatever reason, um, I think my, my previous boss, Heidi, just liked what I thought about the direction of the bookstore. I was really dedicated and excited about it. I, I don't think anybody resented me for taking over. I think for pretty much everyone thought it was a good choice, a good fit. And a lot of the folks who were there when I bought the store are still there working with me. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... <laughs> You'd have to ask her, but <laughs> no, I, mean, <laughs> I think maybe I asked my question in the wrong way. What I meant was, I mean, she must have seen something in you, some sort of calling to be a bookseller or a bookshop owner and probably why, why she asked you. Was it anything from teaching that you took over into bookselling and thought, oh, I'll apply these principles or these useful things? Or was there no, <laughs> no parallel whatsoever? I think, well, bookselling is really different from teaching. And for me, that's a good thing. Um, I have all the love in the world for really good teachers. And like, I really, really admire teachers. I just know that I'm not cut out to be one. Yeah. Um, one thing that's a little surprising is when you're teaching a classroom, especially kind of an unruly classroom, the seating chart is very important. And it's okay. like, this person can't sit next to this person because they're going to make out the whole time. Or this person can't sit next to this person because they're going to act up. This person can't see, so they need to sit close to the book. There are all these factors that, you, that go into making a good seating chart. And that's exactly how making a bookstore schedule feels. There you go. Uh, the, the moving of different parts, the solving of the puzzle, the making sure everyone is in the right place at the right time is true of both seating charts and scheduling employees at the bookstore. <laughs> so that's the one thing I think uh, that comes to mind when I think about overlap between teaching and, and running a bookstore. I really like that. I, it was the furthest answer from what I thought you might say. <laughs> I can imagine something like that. That actually happened to me when I was in school. I got moved several times because people would always 
well, I don't know if people would always talk to me or I would always talk to you, but I would always end up being very chatty with whoever I was sitting next to. So they'd have to be very careful. I could see how that can come in handy in a bookstore. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> How many books are in your shop? I have 15,000 books in the bookstore, roughly. What was the last book you sold in your shop? I don't know. I'm on bookstore <laughs> right now. I'm in Windsor, Ontario, in Canada, and I haven't had a time to look at the sales reports from yesterday, so I'm not sure. Uh, one of the great things about having really wonderful co-owners and managers is that I can do work from the road like this, and we can split up and divide the tasks. So uh, based on what I'm doing for the Raven, Right now, I don't know what the last book we sold was. If you couldn't sell books anymore, what would you do? I would love to be a writer full time, if possible. If not, um, doing some kind of community work that helped writers, like teaching writing or helping to run writing classes or putting on writing conferences. I would love to stay within the, the world of writing and books. What book are you reading at the moment? Well, since I talk elsewhere on the podcast about Hanif Abdurraqib's There's Always This Year, I'm also reading a book called The Golem of Brooklyn by Adam Mansbach, which is a Jewish comedy novel about an art teacher who accidentally makes a mythical monster out of clay in his backyard. I knew that you would have another book because most people read yeah. these two. So yeah. um, what's your second favorite bookshop? I, this is really hard. And I think it would be a conflict of interest to pick a bookstore from my book. So it's a 12-way tie for my second favorite with all the bookstores that are in my book. But if not those, I would have to say City Lights in San Francisco, which I think is absolutely a pioneer of what we call independent bookselling today. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is a poet bookseller, is the, is the hero, is the icon for me. And to this day, it's, they've been doing it for a long time and they're still doing it so, so well. So I know that you're not only a bookseller, you're also an author. And I'd like to talk to you about your latest book. But maybe before getting to your latest book, you can tell me a bit about your career as a writer, as a, as a poet, and now as a writer of nonfiction. How does that go alongside being a bookseller and being a bookshop owner, which sounds to me like a very busy, <laughs> busy, busy <laughs> job. When do you have the time and more than the time, just the you know, kind of energy to, to sit down and be creative and write poetry or write nonfiction and do all the research that goes into that. How do you do both of these things at the same time? It's a good question. Um, I like working, especially when it's work I value, like writing books or running a bookstore. You know, I came to writing as a poet primarily. That's what I went to grad school for. My first book is, is pretty much my grad school thesis. After that, after that book was published, um, I mean, you know what it is to be the parent of a young child and how it's, it's very busy and all consuming and whatever moments of free time you have are just little snippets, um, just a yep. couple minutes. And I found that writing, writing, Taking poetry, a shower, basically. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> writing poetry actually fits into that really well, because you can work on a little poem uh, with just a couple minutes or you can nurse a poem over a couple days, just coming back to poke at it a couple times. I wrote a lot of my second book in the middle of the night um, with one hand on my phone as I was trying to rock my baby to sleep. So at like 3 a.m., um, whatever it was about that mind state actually really was conducive to poetry to me. <laughs> um, so 
Yeah, I mean, that's the poetry. And I'm always writing poetry. I always have a manuscript in progress. Um, the nonfiction stuff came much more out of the bookstore world. The Amazon book grew out of working in the bookstore and, and having discussions in the bookstore. And I, I kind of conceived it as a resource for booksellers to have conversations about Amazon with their communities. And then the new one, the bookstore book came out of the same place. It's like, I want to, to help people have conversations about the importance of bookstores in America and around the world. But you're right, nonfiction is really a challenge to edit and research and write, um, but you just have to be really intentional about it and be like, I'm gonna stop working at the bookstore at three today. Um, and then from three to five, I'm gonna research until I pick up my son from daycare. And you just have to stick to that. It takes a lot of discipline to produce a, a nonfiction book as a parent with a day job. Um, and there are days it feels really overwhelming. And it's like, as soon as the book was finished and out, I'm not working on a nonfiction book right now. I'm, I'm back in the comfortable arms of poetry for a little while <laughs> until I come up with another idea, until I find the energy to, to jump back into nonfiction. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like you need really a lot of discipline and have these pockets of time. You're like, I have to, to, to do my best. I heard someone recently say that, well, they were referring to mothers, but I think you could talk about all parents and little kids, that they tend to be the most productive at work because they just have such clear discipline. Like I only have these two hours. I got to get everything done because then I have to pick up my son in daycare or I, you know, right. I can't not pick him up. So I can't stay longer. So I need to do my work. So that does make sense. Can you talk to me a little bit about the the two books for any listeners who, who may not know about them? What was the first book about and, and how is the second book different? Yeah, well, the first book is called How to Resist Amazon and Why. And that book it started as a thread on Twitter, um, which I then turned into a zine that we self-published. And I got enough orders for the self-published zine that I became very overwhelmed with all the folding and stapling that I was doing. And so this <laughs> publisher called Microcosm Publishing agreed to distribute the zine. Um, they sold enough copies of the zine that they were like, we think you need to turn this into a book. And I was like, I'm a poet. I don't want to write. I don't want to spend three years of my life writing about Jeff Bezos. But they convinced me that it was a good idea and they were totally right because it's been a really uh, humbling and wonderful couple of years with that book. Um, and so we actually put out a second edition of that book and revised it with some new stuff that was updated. And that's the one that's out right now. Can I just ask you about this book? Yeah. Just from, from the title of it, How to Resist Amazon, to me, it would feel like it's aimed at the, at the consumers or the customers. But I'm not sure that that's the case, right? Because I've also... Yeah. I read a statement of yours um, somewhere saying that you don't actually blame people that buy stuff from Amazon, right? So that you don't put the responsibility or the guilt on all of us who might at some point have purchased whatever on Amazon. So is, is the audience of that book, is it anyone and everyone? Or who exactly is, is the audience intended for, it, for your first book? It's a good question. I, mean, I think... Well, the title works because it sold a lot of books. And that's like the ultimate goal is a lot of people are buying this book and talking about it, which is great. Had I known that, I might have thought a little bit more about the title, I think. Like there's not actually a ton of how in the book. There's a lot of why. I think it's aimed at anybody who believes in community, who thinks that communities need spaces together, especially small businesses who value the, the town square, who value small businesses, who value good jobs. I think anybody who cares about that stuff will find something in the book. That being said, a lot of the solution to the problem of Amazon is policy solutions because it's a policy problem. There's a failure of policy that let Amazon get so big and so powerful. And so you can't solve 
systemic problems with individual actions alone. And in fact, I think the people who are creating societal problems would want individuals to think it's up to them to solve. I think about the climate crisis. You know, you've got gigantic corporations um, controlling most of the emissions and driving most of climate change, telling people they need to switch light bulbs to solve the climate crisis. Uh, and it's like if there's no policy and there's no corporate accountability, then it doesn't matter what light bulbs you use. And so I do address that in the book. And I frequently have people come up to me and apologize for shopping on Amazon. And I'm like, please don't do that. <laughs> like, it's I'm not the Amazon police and I don't want to be. So, yeah, that's a nuanced story to tell. But I think that's why it takes a whole book to do it. Ultimately, I think the second edition of the Amazon book is the best articulation of all of that, because it does address that these are systemic problems that need systemic solutions. Mm. Yeah. And especially if we're looking at the book industry, right, because you were mentioning policy measures that would need to be in place. Just the fact that in some countries, Amazon is forced to have a certain book price and others yeah. it is not. Right. It's just a very basic example of how well policy could control the effect they can have in an industry. On the previous episode, we were talking about climate change and the individual responsibility because the, the bookseller I had on that episode runs a bookshop focusing on, on climate and nature. And how it's an interesting mix, right? You, uh -huh. We do all have some level of individual responsibility. Yeah. If I decide to buy on Amazon versus the, my next door bookshop, I have made a decision and I have supported them versus supporting a bookshop. But I completely agree with you that if we only put the responsibility on people, then yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's very well, nuanced, right? And we sometimes want yeah. a very black and white, like, what do I need to do exactly? And it's not maybe that clear cut. I really believe that you like as a, I think a core part of my activism is that it's centered around building things and, and standing for something in addition to standing against something. And so it's it's not just not shopping on Amazon. It's shopping at the places that are enriching your community. And I think that's true across both books, but especially in the second one, uh, how to protect bookstores and why. In a way, it's the same story. It's like bookstores are important. They need to be protected. There are a lot of threats that, especially in the U.S., that are threatening their ability to do the work they do. In the second book, I, I really wanted to shine a light on, on stores that were figuring out how to do amazing work despite all the problems um, and all the challenges. And so that really you have to stand for something. So in the Amazon book, I have the idea that it's like Amazon, if you withhold your purchases from Amazon, Amazon is so big that the, it's not really going to make a difference to them. And they don't actually make that much money on retail purchases anyway. They make a lot of money. On, or on books, on, right? Yeah. So they're, they're making money on Amazon web services and they're making money on seller fees for third-party marketplace sellers. So it's not going to make a huge difference to them. But if you take that purchase to a bookstore, it will make a difference to the bookstore. There are many, many days where the difference between the profitable and unprofitable is a single hardcover book. And so that could be what pushes them into, into the black for the day. Um, but even more than that, you've become a part of their community. And that's really tangible. And they, they can feel that and they do appreciate it. So it's not so much not shopping on Amazon, but it is shopping at a, a local uh, bookstore. That's definitely part of it is is being constructive and not just standing in opposition. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And not thinking that it's a zero sum game. I mean, you could buy a book on Amazon that you haven't found anywhere else that could happen to all of us. 
but then you are still supporting your local bookstore in you know most cases. I just recently had a really funny conversation. So I live in a village in Spain. We don't have a bookstore, but we have a library and a couple of charity shops that sell books. And then I think we have another, we have another library that only has English books. A few of us came up with this idea to have a free mini library, you know, the ones that are kind of all around yeah. the world, like a little box that could fit, I don't know, maybe 30 books. And just immediately some of the reactions from people were so bizarre to me. A few people saying, but we already have the charity shops and you're taking the books from the charity shops that could, you know, help the charity. I'm like, But this is not a zero sum game. You can have books there and there and then. <laughs> and it's fine. What we're trying to do is create a culture where there's more books. There's more literacy for little kids. They see books around. They understand that their village doesn't have a bookshop, but it has books in other places. And more and more, I think if we start thinking like that, rather than it's this versus that, I think in some areas, such as books, it's helpful. Perhaps in others, it's not so helpful, but I think yeah. in this, in this field, was, it should be. I was talking to an entrepreneurship class at the local high school the other day, and someone asked me how we distinguish ourselves from our competition in downtown Lawrence. And my answer was, I don't have competition in downtown Lawrence. Uh, like I'm rooting for the record shop. I'm rooting for the stationery shop. I'm rooting for all the restaurants. I'm rooting for the used bookstore. I'm rooting for the library because it's like we all work together to make a vibrant downtown. And if more people are coming downtown and spending money, it's good for all of us or even just coming downtown and walking around. It isn't even about spending money. But if there's a vibrant collection of people in and out of the places on any given afternoon or night, that's good news for all of us. The way I view my competition in my town is that I don't have any at all um, because it really isn't a zero-sum game. You're totally right in that um, the creation of community is not about uh, competing for a limited number of attention. It's like people don't have a quotient of community. It's like community kind of regenerates itself. And the more ingrained you become in a community, I think the more your life is enriched. Everybody doesn't have a fixed amount of community potential. It's a renewable resource, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And that's that's where my love for bookstores comes from, really, because, you know, as you see, not just Amazon, but technology in general is developing so fast, right? And you could get pretty much anything you want so quickly. So if we focus our lives around just convenience and ease, then we're probably not going to support spaces like bookstores, because in those senses, maybe they're not the most practical, efficient, quick, fast-paced sort of things. But if we remember that it's about community, it's about having spaces where we gather, where you find something unexpected, where you have a conversation you would otherwise not have, where you run into someone you might not run into otherwise. There's all these serendipitous things that can happen in a bookstore that won't happen on an online platform ever. That's what we're protecting, right? And that's, that's to me, that's, that's the beauty of a bookstore. I mentioned that here where I live, I don't have a bookstore. It's the first time ever that I live somewhere that doesn't have a bookstore. And I can see what that what that means to me, what it means also to other people here that like to read, that it is an actual lack that people sense. And that when when we travel, we go to bookstores because we miss them, you know. And I remember also whenever I moved, I'd always kind of find my favorite bookstores as soon as I got there. Yeah. Like it, they felt like anchors, like I got to have, you know, one here and one in this other neighborhood just needs to know we're there. They're really important spaces that we want to protect. And after this long ramble of mine, I guess what I want to ask you is what, what is the future of bookstores in your opinion? If you think about how challenging it is for them to stay in business, 
financially on the one hand. And then on the other hand, of all these technologies that are competing for attention with paper books. Is there a future? I really hope you're going to say yes. <laughs> I'm guessing that your book says that too. And what does that future look like in, in your opinion? I think the easier answer is, the, is there a future of the book? And I think it's absolutely yes. The thing about people worrying about the future of the book is that it's happened for centuries. Like ever since the invention of the book, people have been pred predicting the death of the book. Cable TV was going to kill the book. The internet was going to kill the book. E-readers were going to kill the book. When they invented paperback books, they thought that was going to kill the books. <laughs> uh, so you can't sell books at a grocery store. So I think the book is going to be fine. For this book, I, for How to Protect Bookstores and Why, I had the honor of interviewing Louise Erdrich, who is a uh, National Book Award winning author, fantastic novelist, and she owns an amazing bookstore called Birch Bark in Minneapolis. She says the paperback book is an invention that's like perfectly suited to humans. It's like the fork. It's essential. It's it's at its final form. You cannot improve upon the book and and therefore it it will last. And like if Louise says that, then I'm going to believe it because she more than anyone <laughs> else that. will know. Uh, so it's just like perfect design. It's like we've, yeah, right. we've hit the end. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true. It, it really is an amazing piece of technology. It's for the price, yeah. like you get for, you know, a 20 euros, you get hours of entertainment, something that never expires, something that will last for hundreds of years. That's just amazing. Um, in terms of the bookstores, I think what the bookstore has as an advantage over all of these other technologies is, is two things. I think one is its connection to its community. And two is humans. And I think the future of the bookstore is leaning into both of those. In a way, it's not really a technological answer. It's like, how can, how can humans capitalize on that uniqueness? How can you make something that's very human and very community-centered? And to me, I think that's broadening the idea of what a bookstore can be. Who can own bookstores? What does a bookstore look like? How can we disrupt the model? I think the idea that a bookstore is, is a quiet place in a small town owned by one old man is, that's, that's, I've been to a lot of bookstores that are like that, that are wonderful, but I've been to employee-owned co-ops. I've been to bookstores that give books away. I've been to bookstores that are nonprofits. And I really celebrate the kind of invention and creativity and thinking beyond the traditional forms of the bookstore. And I think that's the future. Human-centered, community-centered, and, and dreaming up new ways that we can define the idea of bookstore itself. And can you tell me more about one of the things you mentioned, the employee-owned bookstore? Because I know that's something you you did at Raven, right? And that a few other bookshops are doing. I'm not so sure that many in Europe are doing that, or I haven't heard of too many European ones having this model. And I'm just curious to know, from your perspective, is that just a more sustainable, financially speaking model because employees are more invested in it? Or, or why is this a superior way of, of running a bookshop? It's a good question. I think one of the, the challenges that we have in America that's not as widespread in Europe is that is private health insurance is so expensive. And that makes it really hard. That's one of the things that make it really hard to create a lasting career as a bookseller. A single health crisis can wipe out all your money if you're it's like there's just not a ton of money in bookselling. And so people don't view it as a permanent career. And if you don't have booksellers who are doing it for decades, you're losing out on a lot of human knowledge. And expertise. And so employee ownership is one way to try 
to create careers in bookselling. These are booksellers who are literally bought into their stores. They share in the profits, so they make a little bit more money and they feel invested. Not only are they are invested, but they feel invested in the future of the store. It strengthens their connection to it. And I think it's, it's more just. Any bookstore is gonna live or die on its employees and, and employee ownership is just a way to financially reflect that. So what, what happened in your bookshop when you made this transition? What did you what did you notice? Was there a palpable change immediately from oh, yeah. the employees that became the owners? Yeah. We're still figuring it out. It's totally an experiment. Cause like even though there are a couple of folks working on it in the United States, it's still pretty unprecedented. And at least here the capitalist system is not set up for something like a business owner to try to make less money. The lawyer and the accountant that I worked with, the, I had to have some conversations with them. It's like, yes. I know this doesn't technically make sense, but I want to make less money from my bookstore and make it easier for other people to buy into it. But the discussions have been really interesting and, and we've gone in directions that I wouldn't have expected or I wouldn't have picked. But I think that's a beautiful thing because, again, it reflects the interests and the ideas of all the people who work at the store. It doesn't kind of start and end with me. And I really love that and appreciate it. So it's been challenging. It's been really interesting. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it takes a really long time to make a decision. But again, I think we absolutely made the right choice. You wouldn't change it. If you, no. if you could, you wouldn't go back. <laughs> but it's also like we're changing it every day because it's like we still yeah. don't have like a really clear answer for what a bookseller owner looks like because we're, we're kind of making it up as we go along. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully other people are watching us and getting ideas and thinking about ways to expand the definition of how a bookstore can function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to you, is that part of what the the bookstore of the future will look like? It'll be employee owned? What else will be different or or what else will feel different about the bookstore in, let's say, 50 years time? If you're to make some really wild predictions that I will not hold you accountable for huh. because we'll be really old. But <laughs> if you're to just venture a guess, 50 years from now, what will bookstores be like? I would, well, in some ways, I, I would hope they would be the same. I think in ways that the paperback book is a perfect invention. I think the bookstore is also kind of a really wonderful environment that's been perfected over the last 50 or 60 years. So I'm not sure the actual experience is, I would want to be all that different. I would hope that the people working there are a perfect reflection of the diversity of their community and customers. Bookselling is a predominantly white industry in the United States, and I hope in the next 50 years we can figure out how to fix that. I hope they own the building that they're in instead of renting it. And I hope that some of these problems have been solved enough that the booksellers don't have to worry about it, which on the sales floor would be reflected in them having much more energy to to do what they do with customers. I hope they're working on the parts they love about bookselling and not the really hard parts. I hope they have enough energy to hand sell, to merchandise, to do all the great stuff that human booksellers can do. And do you see technology playing any role here or we should just try to keep technology out of the bookshops and let it be what it is now or keep it's it? It's a really interesting question. I came, I was in Prague for the Rise Bookselling Conference last spring, and I noticed that, that European booksellers ask questions about technology in really different ways than American booksellers do. And I'm like, that I think could be its own podcast. In what uh, way? What kind of questions did they ask? Or what, what would, would you say is different culturally? They're just much more interested in it. Mm. I think the question of technology comes up much more with European 
And maybe it's because the U.S. has much more. I mean, like we're worrying about real estate costs and health insurance and like keeping the fascists out of our government. And like, uh, well, we, we have our own fascists here, but right. yeah, no, maybe not not as many. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. I, I think it's a little inspiring. I wonder if thinking about technology and data might make our job easier. Um, and I wonder if that European thinking might help us over here. But yeah, I think I have to spend more time thinking about technology and how it can help. Our point of sale works pretty well. We like it. It makes our job easier. It can be a hassle sometimes. It's not perfect. So I think that's how we view technology. The American Booksellers Association has an e-commerce platform that we subscribe to. We don't have to build our own websites. And I think that's maybe part of it. And again, it's not perfect. We don't have a good looking website, but it works. It helps us sell books. It takes a lot of the work out of worrying about technology away from us. And so maybe there's stuff we just take for granted, but I would certainly love to spend more time talking about technology with European booksellers. I think I met one of the previous guests on your podcast at that conference. I was on a panel with uh, Federico Lang at that oh, conference. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Libraria Luces. And he, he, it's one of the European booksellers who spends a lot of time thinking about technology. I think a lot of the questions that I'm hearing in, in Europe are around kind of technologies like AI and how is that going to influence book recommendations yeah. that booksellers make, which I really hope will not because that's what right. Amazon can do. And you know, I, we don't want that, I think, when we go into a bookshop. And then there's questions around social media platforms like TikTok and how are they influencing yeah. what what is being sold. So I think uh -huh. these are a little bit the conversations that I'm hearing yeah. around, you know, how much what's happening online in terms of book influencers and all that, how much is that influencing what's happening in bookshops and yeah. how much should booksellers listen to that or how much should they just never yeah. listen to that? <laughs> Those are good questions with, I mean... As an author, most of the authors I know are really apprehensive about AI. And many of them have seen their books be used to train AI without their consent and are involved in legal action about that very thing. And so I'm deeply skeptical of AI as it exists right now. However we use technology, it cannot lose touch with humanity because being a store run by humans with human interests and human reading habits is our strength. And the big tech companies might tell you that something that's very human is inefficient, but like, that's a wonderful thing. The fact that we're unpredictable, inefficient, weird, surprising is our biggest strength. And so however we use technology, it cannot be in a way that obscures humanity and the humanity of the bookstore. That being said, I think that the book talk is really interesting because a lot of these books that go viral on TikTok are because of these people making videos of their own faces, like crying after they finish the book. And like, that is a human thing. It's like this book tore me apart. It devastated me and you should read it too. And so in a way, I think TikTok does enable some good human to human book selling. It's really difficult especially if you're like me, you're not on TikTok. We're often chasing books that are popular on TikTok because we hear about them secondhand and it can be hard to keep track of. And they're often old books that the publisher doesn't have any copies of. So like, on the back end, if we could have a little bit more warning, that would be great. But I think TikTok is a, is a technology that's facilitating this kind of human exchange of, of bookish knowledge.
much more than AI, which the way I see it practiced now is trying to take the humans out of books, which is not a good thing to me. Yeah. I think you're still safe as a poet because I, I don't think it's able to write good poetry yet. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. It depends, I guess, how I, you think good poetry is. And yeah, I'm not on TikTok either, so I can't speak firsthand. But I would imagine just, I, I just think it's a good sign that there is yeah. so much going on on TikTok around books, given that the audience is very, very, or, or the people using TikTok are very, very young. So that gives me a lot of hope. Well, Danny, before I let you go, before I let all booksellers go, I definitely want to talk about books a little bit. So I want to give you some space to talk to me about books, books that you love. What do you like to read? What do you like to recommend people walking into your bookshop? Any books that really changed your changed your life, changed your mind about anything that you'd like to share with us? This is, this yeah. is your book space. <laughs> this is your sure. TikTok. I mean, I really... I'm a fiction reader. Of course, I read poetry, but I primarily read fiction. But like, if people are interested in bookshop, they this they asked this question at my event last night, so this is top of mind. But I love the book "84 Charing Cross Road" by Helene Hanf. I think it's the best book written about bookstores. And every time I feel like I'm losing touch with the love of bookselling, I kind of return to this book. It's an epistolary novel, so it's just letters that are exchanged between this aging, incredibly cranky writer in New York and an antiquarian bookseller in London. And it starts with a single order for some books and then it kind of develops into this beautiful friendship um, and has a, a really beautiful, heartbreaking conclusion. Um, but it's basically a platonic love story that's told exclusively through correspondence about used book purchases. It's so wonderful. The characters are beautiful. You can read it over the course of two cups of coffee. It's short. It's like a little poem of a book and I, I love it so much. And it's one of the things that really kind of galvanized my belief in the power of bookselling. 84 Chair and Crossroad by Helene Hamp. Well, that's a very solid book recommendation. I'll definitely get that. And what, what else, what are you reading at the moment? Are you reading anything now that you'd recommend? Yeah, I'm reading the new book by um, Hanif Abdurraqib, who is, I'm proud to say, is a friend of mine, but he's an amazing cultural critic and music writer here in the States. He's from Ohio, just like I am. I mean, his new book, which comes out in April, is called There's Always This Year. The kind of backbone of it is the high school career and drafting of LeBron James, the basketball player, who, of course, played for the Cleveland Cavs when I still lived in Cleveland. That's where I'm from. LeBron and Hanif and I are all basically the same age. And so it's a really personal book. Hanif can make beauty out of anything from pop culture. But the fact that he's writing about something that's so near and dear to my heart makes this book really special to me. I've been waiting for it for a long time and I'm really excited for the world to read it, too. It's about basketball, aging, love, growing up. Um, it's a really gorgeous book. There's Always This Year by Hanif Abdurraqib. That's a really nice title, too. That's great. Yeah. Um, and since I don't get to interview a lot of poets, is there any poetry that you'd recommend? Anything that you read to inspire maybe your own writing or just poetry that you admire? Oh, yeah. I just picked up a book called The Book of Jane by Jennifer Habel. I did an event with her and her husband, Chris Batchelder. Chris is one of my favorite novelists. He wrote a book called The Throwback Special, which is really important to me. And a book called Abbott Awaits, which is the best fictional depiction of of parenthood of a young kid that I've ever read. So Abbott Awaits is, is an amazing uh, book about parenting. Chris and Jennifer, who are married to each other, wrote their most recent book called Days Work Together. It's co-written and it's about a married couple of writers who kind of become obsessed with Herman Melville as like a pandemic project. 
It's about isolation in the pandemic. It's about Moby Dick, but it's also about what cost being a writer has on the family, both their family in the present day and Melville's family in the past and a couple other literary families throughout. Um, so that's a great book. When I met them, they told me to read Jen's book because it, it deals with similar themes. So I'm really excited to dive into the book of Jane by um, Jennifer Habel. The book that always, if 84 Charing Cross Road is my tent pole bookstore book, my tent pole poetry book is um, Lunch Poems by Frank O'Hara, which is an absolute classic. One of the early books published by City Lights in their legendary Pocket Poets series. But the idea of Lunch Poems is Frank O'Hara in the 50s as part of the New York School worked as a curator at MoMA at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And he would wander about New York City on his lunch break and write these, these brilliant, chatty, welcoming, accessible poems that are just in love with the dazzling vitality of, of New York City and life and his friends. It's an amazing book and it's also like pocket size so you can bring it with you. I love the idea that like you can bring these lunch break poems on your lunch break and just read a couple as you're out on a sunny day in the middle of a beautiful city. Yeah, definitely better than scrolling through social media or whatever, <laughs> right. silly thing. <laughs> yeah. Put away your phone, take some, take a walk with some Frank O'Hara. It'll be much better for you. Yeah, and people will, will think you're so much more interesting as well. Like if you wanna make <laughs> friends, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, Danny, thank you so, so much. Um, my final question for you today, since we spoke so much about the future of bookshops and beautiful books and all that, What's like one wish that you have for your bookstore and for other bookstores around the world, maybe the ones you featured on your last book? What's your kind of wish for them going into the next 10, 20 years? Stability. I wish for uh, stability and security so they can spend time worrying about doing the things they love instead of threats to it. If they can feel secure, they can be fully unleashed uh, in the power of their book selling. And I think that would be a beautiful thing. I like that. Stability for all the independent bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Daddy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Got Books today. If this podcast brings you some joy, makes you feel closer to the world of books and bookshops, please share it with just one friend that you know will appreciate it. We'll be back soon with more bookseller conversations. Until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy a good book. <laughs>